Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. U.S. President Joe Biden delivers a State of the Union address to a divided Congress. What economic and foreign policy achievements does Biden have to show for his first two years in office amid upside-down public opinions? And U.S. top diplomat Antony Blinken cancelled his planned China visit over the weekend. Where does this leave China-U.S. ties? Welcome to The Point. I'm Li Xin. It's time for the annual U.S. State of the Union address again on Tuesday evening. U.S. President Joe Biden started his State of the Union address, otherwise known as SOTU, to a divided Congress halfway through his term. The address traditionally focuses on domestic issues, but given the ongoing finger-pointing between the U.S. and China after the U.S. shot down what China says is a weather-monitoring airship, has this year's SOTU address been different? What is President Biden's saying about China. Given his upside-down approval rating, will his words vaporize just like hot air? I'm pleased to be joined from Maryland, U.S. by uh, Saurabh Gupta, Senior Asia-Pacific International Relations Policy Specialist at the Institute for China-America Studies. From Portland, U.S. by Professor Liang Yan, Kremer Chair Professor of Economics at uh, William Met University. And from Beijing by Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy. Welcome to all of you. So let's start right away by what President Biden just said about China. Moments ago, literally, he said, uh, we've made clear and I've made my personal conversation with many, with President Xi, that we see competition with China, not conflict. He said, but I will make no apologies that we're investing to make America uh, strong investing in American innovation in industries that would define the future and that China's government intends to be dominating, he says. Concerning what happened over what China says to be the airship incident, Biden said, today we're in the strongest position in decades to compete with China or anyone else in the world and anyone else in the world. He said, I'm committed to work with China where I where it can to advance American interests and benefit the world. But make no mistake about it, as we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country. And we did. Look, let's be clear. Winning the competition should unite all of us. We face serious challenges across the world. Um, Mr. Gupta, let me go to you first. What do you read from this paragraph? Of course, there are other things he said as well, but uh, uh, these are the gist of what he talked about on China. What do you read from it? What I read from it is that Mr. Biden is staying consistent to the line that he has had from day one in his administration with regard to China, and that this is an administ administration which is focused on extreme competition with China. But extreme competition, in his view, doesn't necessarily has to devolve into conflict. And therefore, he has talked about trying to create guardrails. Whether those guardrails could be created is still up in the air, simply because there has been an exchange of good intentions by both sides. But as we've seen with this past weekend itself, intentions, it's hard to translate intentions into actions. Until that happens, we are going, we will just have a relationship which is unstable and which will, which, which adds an, an element of instability to regional affairs and international affairs. 
So I don't see something different in terms of what Mr. Biden spoke at SOTU. And in fact, I think he is very clear that China is a peer competitor to him. In fact, he had he mentioned clearly in terms of trying to outcompete Mr. President Xi Jinping, he spoke very directly. Who is the other leader in the world who's gone up with Mr. Xi Jinping this year? And he's, he's trying to show that he has the upper hand on President Xi this year. No other leader could do that. And in a way, you know, it's, it's actually a compliment to China that China is this peer competitor of the United States, which has been this superpower of the 20th, 20th century. And yeah. China has caught up. And that's what I read in it. Okay. Professor Leung, do you see it that's what, that way that, you know, being seen as the most or oh, one of the, the the most formidable rivals of the united states is a compliment for china but in real policies what would that mean yeah i think to some extent maybe um that's a good sign to say that you know china is becoming so strong and becoming um such a competitor but that said, I think a lot of the policies so far have been really counterproductive. I think there's a lot of areas where China and the United States would have to collaborate. And I think setting the guardrail um, to avoid conflict, it's a necessity, but it's really a low bar. Um, I think, you know, with climate change, with, you know, many of the geopolitical tensions that are around the world, and also with the, you know, urgency of recovering the economy from post-pandemic, uh, you know, stagnation, um, there are many areas I think the two countries should really collaborate as, as opposed to be just, you know, uh, uh, competing to trying to drag each other down instead of trying to, you know, um, uh, climb up and trying to, you know, emulate each other. Mm. Mr. Zhao, is there anything different, anything special in what he see in what presidents Biden said to you, uh, do you see him trying to balance toughness with restraint uh, as what he should do in such kind of a address? Yeah, I think uh, on the one hand, I agree with the previous speakers that the uh, Biden uh, speech uh, has nothing new vis-a-vis uh, -vis the previous policy declarations, particularly from last May, uh, when uh, Secretary Blinken uh, talked about uh, its policy towards China based on uh, investment alignment and competition. However, in this speech, of course, you can see that President Biden is speaking to domestic audience and he's trying to reinforce his position as continue to be tough on China and fend off any challenge from the opposition, from particularly uh, uh, Republicans that challenge him and, and uh, talk about him being soft or being uh, surrendering American sovereignty uh, to China. So in his speech, he emphasized he's been, he has the strongest position uh, in the past decades over China. And secondly, of course, the recent balloon incident has been, you know, uh, very quickly put into his speech. He talked about protecting American sovereignty. That's good because China also needs to protect its sovereignty. And therefore, the U.S. Sh should respect China's sovereignty, uh, to, particularly on the issue of Taiwan. So if uh, the U.S. asking China to respect its sovereignty, this should be mutual. And China asking for mutual respect between the two countries and peaceful coexistence. So, yes, I think moving forward, if uh, President Biden really wanted to cooperate where two countries uh, need to be, then uh, on other issues, uh, we need to draw the red line and have uh, uh, put a floor or a guardrail between these two countries. Right. Well, uh, especially if he talks about all the challenges humanities are facing across the world. Um, I, I want to focus on some of the domestic issues that he touched upon. Where I find it puzzling is it seems that some of the goals President Biden outlined uh, contradict 
or may not be achieved by some of the practices that he's uh, uh, preaching. For instance, he wants to boost the American middle class, but by competing with China, or by, by keeping China down, for instance, is that going to serve the purpose of enriching the American middle class? Let's take trade as an example. For instance, bilateral trade actually went achieved an all-time high in the year 2020, and trade with China is an important part of the American middle class prosperity, if you can put it that way. So, Mr. Gupta, do you see the kind of contradiction in what he plan says he plans to achieve and what he is planning to do vis-a-vis -vis China? I absolutely see the contradiction, and it's a really good point that you have pointed out, because the contradiction out here is that Mr. Biden is actually looking at short-term gains through protectionist measures and creating jobs through a lot of fiscal spending. And it will create jobs and it will create growth. But what it will not create is having America operate at its productivity frontier. For America to operate at its, at its most productive, it needs to have an open economy and trade with its most consequential trading partners. And so what is going to happen is behind these barriers and these walls, jobs will be created, but there will not be top-notch competitive positions and so while the jobs will be created at home, they will not be able to export out from the U.S. because you, the United States would not be the top-notch competitive producer of products. And I think to overcome that barrier, the way to go about doing it is having an open trading system, particularly, as I said, with China and with Asia, and not use the various maneuvers that he has talked about. In fact, the very first legislative accomplishment that he pointed to was the CHIPS Act. And right. yes, it will create jobs. And he talked of the Inflation Reduction Act, etc., and the Infrastructure Act. But what's going to happen with this Buy America provisions and those other provisions is America is not going to be a cutting edge producer. He's manufacturing jobs in the short term, which will haunt America in the longer right. term. And the way to do that is to have an open trading arrangement with your trading partners. Professor Liang, do you see a problem there? Because he was talking about manufacturing jobs coming back to the United States and he expects more manufacturing jobs to come back to the United States and that the supply chain begins in America. But with the high wages, for instance, with the lack of training, with the kind of costs uh, of production, is it likely to happen that uh, the middle class will be wealthier, the poorer will get richer? and Meanwhile, you know, to have the kind of manufacturing back in the United States and to keep in innovation in United States alone. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, reshoring manufacturing jobs is a great political rhetoric, but it does not make a lot of economic sense. What he really needs to be talking about is how we create high value, um, high skill, high paid jobs. Uh, within the United States, instead of having this zero my, uh, zero sum game mindset, and I agree with you what you just mentioned about costs. Uh, we know in terms of the chips, for example. Um, let me back up back, back up a little bit more. I think again, if, if you want to create jobs, that's totally fine, and I think that should be the priority of the American president. But I don't think you need to ban you know the exports of chips or other high tech um, to China, or um, in some ways entice your businesses to come back to. 
uh, the United States without any considerations of you know cost and efficiency. Um, so when it comes to the cost, um, I think the United States has been really good at you know designing the chips, and we know the chip designers' gross margin it's way higher than you know chip manufacturing, assembly, and testing, and that's one point. I think countries can specialize, right? And the other point is um, you know chip production does have very high costs, ten to twenty billion dollars at the initial stage, and it takes over five years to to build. Um, also, it's very high, you know, resource cost when it comes to water. For example, it takes 4.7 million gallons of water every day, and so on and so forth. So I think, regardless of the considerations of costs, and uh, just wanted to bring jobs back home. I think that will hurt the U.S.'s bottom line in the long term. Um, not to mention, you know, the allocation of resources and human capital in, uh, you know, the bring jobs versus, you know, the, the manufacturing jobs. Um, so I think there are a lot of problems with this kind of political rhetoric without really cool economic calculations mm. and thinking. Mm. Well, um, Mr. Chow, as I mentioned earlier, the public opinion is upside down, at least according to uh, a poll by conducted by ABC and Wall Street uh, Journal. Um, great majority of Americans think that their lives have uh, uh, not gotten better. Uh, they have a very strong lack of uh, confidence in the Biden administration, in the Democratic Party, and in the Republicans for working together and for their leadership. Uh, but if you if you look at the optics, if you listen to the speech, it sounds like they're all agreeing with each other, except in a, in a few points when it comes to debt, for instance. Uh, so exactly what's the reality? Um, why do American electorate not buying what uh, Biden seems to be trying to sell? Well, because uh, U.S. statistics is disconnected with common people's lives. That's one of the fundamental problems. Uh, when uh, President Biden is showing off his numbers, for instance, created 12 million jobs in two years, or uh, the economy is growing uh, in a pretty fast uh, rate, and also inflation is going down, yeah, some of those are true. However, the common people are not feeling it. And that's why when people are talking about real income, real life experience, these are disconnected with those numbers because those numbers in, in many ways are doctored oh. or not really reflecting the daily life. Okay. Uh, one thing is important because the, this administration continue to say they're going to use uh, follow middle class economics, mm -hmm. right? And then they use national security excuses to crack down on trade. So overall, in the long period, that's actually a reflection of protectionism and populism. All right. We all know the end end game of we, those uh, trends. We might have to leave it there. Thank you so much, gentlemen. And uh, of course, uh, Liang Yan, uh, as well joining us, uh, my guests have been Surab Gupta, Liang Yan and Zhao Hai. We are going to leave it there. Um, President Biden says, let's get the job done. Good luck. Um, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken canceled his uh, China visit over the weekend over a U.S. shooting down of a Chinese civilian unmanned airship. Where does that leave China-U.S. relations? Stay tuned. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken postponed his planned trip to China on February the 5th in light of the Chinese unmanned airship incident. Xu Xueyuan, chargé d'affaires of the Chinese embassy in the United States, lodged a complaint to the U.S. Department of State and the U.S. National Security Council over the U.S. use of force to attack China's civilian unmanned airship that had unintentionally entered U.S. airspace. He urged the U.S. not to further escalate tensions. 
Was Blinken's now postponed China trip a missed opportunity dashed by sheer theatrics? What were China and America on course to achieve before everything deflated? I was pleased to be joined from Beijing by Professor Jia Qingguo, Director of the Institute for Global Cooperation and Understanding at Peking University. From Maine, the U.S. by Susan Thornton, former U.S. Acting Assistant Secretary of State. And from Philadelphia, U.S. by Nason Mabubi, Research Scholar at the Center for the Study of a contemporary China at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Jia, let me go to you first. Now, China's foreign ministry uh, responded to the airship incident saying that the Chinese side regrets the unintended entry of the airship into U.S. airspace due to force majeure. Um, how do you look at this incident and its impact on Blinken's visit that was canceled last minute? Well, I think it's a very unfortunate incident. Uh, uh, happened at the, exactly the wrong time, and the incident uh, appeared to uh, uh, reveal the deep-seated distrust uh, between the two countries. Uh, an accident has been uh, exaggerated, interpreted in all kinds of ways uh, that uh, in the U.S. that made the visit difficult to proceed. Eventually, it led to uh, the decision not to uh, continue with the visit. Uh, on the Chinese side, we also hear a lot of conspiracy stories. <laughs> so uh, I think uh, the visit is very important to help stabilize the relationship and, and also uh, open up all new opportunities uh, for, the, for, for future development. But unfortunately, such a minor incident would cause such a big disruption in the, uh, in, in, in the plans of the two countries. Susan, how, how do you look at the uh, disruption that just happened? Because people were expecting Anthony Blinken to visit China and to at least, you know, talk with the Chinese side face to face, or even if bilateral relationship is at such a low. Uh, what is your sentiments at this moment? Yeah, well, I have to say I agree with Professor Jia that the timing is really not helpful. I mean, the two presidents met in Bali in November. They agreed to try to put a floor under the relationship and make some improvements. And Secretary Blinken's trip was supposed to be a follow up to that to discuss sort of ways to move forward, how to have a positive agenda, to put a you know some guiding principles around the relationship. Um, and I think it's really important for these two biggest powers in the world, frankly, to show that they can manage their relationship responsibly. The rest of the world is looking to this, worried that the deterioration in the relationship is going to affect everyone. Um, you know, these crises and this distrust in the relationship has frequently interrupted the diplomacy between the two sides. And I think what it really points to um, is the difficulty of communication between our two sides. And my understanding is that there was a major effort made by the U.S. to try to clarify a lot of the questions surrounding this airship. Um, and it was very difficult to try to get those answers. And so I think uh, something that we probably both need to look at is improvement of both coordination on our own sides to make sure that we know what's happening in the relationship and then better communication and more transparent communication about what's actually happening. I'm hopeful that we can uh, put this incident sort of uh, in the rearview mirror, but it's going to take some discussion to do that, I think, 
Meanwhile, you've got a lot of um, commentary happening in, in China and in the U.S. And as Professor Jia said, a lot of theories about what happened and, and a lot of people, you know, assuming the worst. And that's really damaging also for to try to get the relationship back on track. So I'm hoping we can do that. Yeah. Nason, yeah. How do you look at the whole incident? Um, what what have been achieved by Blinken's visit. And now that this trip is off for the time being, at least, what is at stake? Well, I will say that I think a lot of us who are hoping for the relationship to at least stabilize um, and perhaps even start to improve a bit, were moderately hopeful that Secretary Blinken's visit might be a step in that direction. I think our uh, hopes were modest um, and circumscribed but they did exist. And it is unfortunate that the visit has been postponed. Um, that said, uh, you know, I do think that this moment uh, reminds me of a phrase that is uh, often said by Rahm Emanuel, who's now the uh, US ambassador to Japan, um, that never let a crisis go to waste. And so this particular incident, and I'll use the terminology that I've enjoyed using for the past few days of balloon. So this balloon incident, um, I think, uh, one, it very much uh, underscored how bad the relationship has become, uh, given the enormous amount of distrust that we've seen around the incident. Um, it really does uh, hammer that point home. If you think about um, prior moments like the 1999 Belgrade bombing or the 2001 EP3 uh, spy plane incident, those were much more serious and uh, they did not elicit the kind of reaction uh, we've seen in the commentariat in both countries in the last few days. Um, so it really does underscore like how bad the relationship has gotten. And it makes you wonder if there was a more serious incident um, not <laughs> involving a balloon floating across the continental U.S., um, what would happen? Would the two sides be able to handle it? And so I guess going back to uh, what Rahm Emanuel says, never let a crisis go to waste, hopefully uh, this can be uh, a wake-up call to leaders on both sides that they really need to get the relationship back to some kind of a stable place that can handle various sorts of things that could be much more serious than a balloon floating across the US. Professor Jia, do you agree with uh, this analogy that uh, Nason just you just quoted, you know, never let the crisis go into waste. Um, do you see the kind of will, at least apparently on the sides of the both president to improve relationship? Because they were meeting and they asked their, you know, uh, relative departments to follow up on what they agreed, but it seemed that uh, uh, not the, the at least um, from the Chinese side, it seems that at least the United States president is not really steering the ship of uh, U.S. policy towards China. Well, I agree that we should learn uh, lessons from uh, the crisis, uh, if media crisis <laughs> we are facing now. More efforts uh, should be made to uh, steer the relationship to the right direction. Uh, the U.S. has a problem uh, of coordination 
uh, actually so uh, its its system is uh, uh, designed to uh, check each other, but then uh, there are people who abuse the system to the extent that uh, made uh, right steerership <laughs> very difficult. I think uh, the Biden administration has a big challenge uh, uh, how to uh, meet that challenge and, and uh, try to calm down the more uh, aggressive uh, Congress people. Uh, that's a big, big challenge, uh, difficult uh, thing to do. But as political leaders, uh, this is something you have to do. We should not let this uh, incident to uh, distract uh, us from the more important things. We should not let the relationship, in other words, to go from bad to worse into some kind of a, a disastrous confrontation. This is something that both countries uh, should uh, pay a lot of attention and should make greater efforts in mm. the future. Yeah. Well, Susan, we just talked about, or oh, Professor Jia just mentioned the kind of conspiracy theories that may be circulating on the Chinese internet. But uh, what we also notably uh, see is is a lot of commentating going on on uh, television, for instance, about uh, the um, sinister nature of such kind of a you know airship and whatever China is doing. And do you see how do you see the impact of those kind of commentary? And uh, are the politicians uh, in Capitol Hill? able to talk to the American general public about, rationally about what needs to be done in terms of uh, relations with China? Well, I do think that, you know, we are in a new information environment since those last crises happened between the United States and China. And what it means is that we need to have better emergency communication quickly so that we can get ahead of public narratives and try to shape them. And I think what you see having happened in this case is that, you know, there was really a long time lag between, you know, when this issue first surfaced and when explanations were given. And then you see that the explanations are not really believed or they're felt to be inadequate. And that's when sort of people start, um, you know, uh, making up their own theories. I mean, in this case, you know, it was a person, you know, just an average person in Montana looking up and seeing something in the sky and taking photos of it. And then there was an article in the newspaper about seeing the strange object in the sky. I mean, that is not the way that you want something like this to unfold. And so I think we really need to have this uh, crisis communication lines opened. They've never worked well between the U.S. and China. And it's just more and more um, fragile to have that be the case. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Professor Jia Xingguo joining us from uh, Peking University, Susan Thornton joining us uh, from Maine, the United States, and Nathan Malbubi joining us from Philadelphia, the United States. Mm -hmm.